Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by grace and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask God's direction on our thinking. Our Father, we're thankful that we can come together, that we have the freedom in this nation still to gather as believers and to proclaim the truth of your word, even though that is under assault in some quarters and the overt hatred of Christianity is more evident today than ever before. But, Father, we pray that we might stand firm. We need to understand who we are in Christ. We need to understand the blessings that we have in Christ, the wonderful privileges that are ours, and the mission given to us to be ambassadors for Christ as his new creation, the church. So, Father, we pray that as we study today that you would continue to challenge us with an understanding of who we are in Christ and its significance for our daily decisions and daily lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning we're continuing our study in Ephesians chapter 4, verses uh, 21 down through 24. And I've gone through this the last couple of weeks, and so today the focus is more on verse 23, when we get there, on renewing our thinking, Ephesians 4, 17 to 21. That's the positive command that is, that is here. It is actually a, another infinitive, but it has that kind of imperatival force in it, that this is something that is to be a continuous reality in our lives. Yesterday, someone asked me the question, you know, what are the the real basics? What do I really need to focus on uh, to continue to grow and mature as a believer and to be uh, in some way protected from what goes on around me? And that's a question we should all be asking on a fairly fairly frequent basis as to what are the fundamentals of just living the Christian life? And they haven't changed any over 2,000 years, although if you go to many churches and many congregations, you would think that, um, that something has changed because uh, most churches today, and I'm not talking about the liberal ones, they left the Bible behind a long time ago, the neo-Orthodox churches, and and many others have left the Bible behind the way they interpret it. But in among many evangelical churches that are supposed to be churches of the Bible, uh, we have compromise, seen compromise in a number of different areas. It, some of this 
happened back in the early 19th century, maybe back as far as the 18th century, some of the groundwork for that compromise began as coming out of the period of the Enlightenment, the emphasis was on uh, human ability, human ability to understand everything in the universe. And uh, there was another movement that started coming out of the period of the uh, of the Enlightenment, which was a rejection of the Bible and an attempt to uh, basically redefine all of reality on the basis of no God, no biblical creation, no universal flood and to understand it totally apart from any any reference to Scripture. And so with the rise of uh, Charles Lyell and the uh, doctrine of uniformitarianism in historical geology, uh, which came earlier than Charles Darwin through the development of the uh, theory of evolution, the hypothesis, really, the theory of biological evolution is set forth in the racist book by Charles Darwin, The Origin of the Species, uh, which is subtitled something along the lines or why the white races will succeed, something like that. That's my paraphrase indicating that he saw, um, he, he had a view of what is called polygenesis, in other words, there's not just one place where the human race evolved, but there were many places where the human race evolved, giving rise to different races having different qualities. And that laid the groundwork for social Darwinism, which led to Adolf Hitler and the Nazi power. And it also provided a rationale for uh, ethnic racism all of which is completely rejected uh, by Scripture. So what happened starting in the early 19th century was you had a compromise that took place, a compromise between what the Bible taught and what was taught uh, by this new science that rejected biblical creation. And that began with what appeared to be not so significant a compromise by one of the foremost theologians of Scotland by the name of Thomas Chalmers. And he suggested that, well, maybe these days in Genesis were just the uh, geologic periods of time. And so you start off with uh, various time periods that that these days are really thousands of years because at that time, the supposition was that the Earth or Earth's history was only maybe 40 or 50,000 years. Well, that's not a whole lot. But it opened the door, and it wasn't long before it was millions of years and then uh, hundreds of millions of years, and we have something quite different. But that was that compromise. By the time you get to the late 19th century and early 20th century, you have the influence of another one of the great evil men of the 19th century, and that's Sigmund Freud, another man who hated Christianity, hated the Christian concept of sin. And so he redefines human behavior in terms of uh, sexual lust and sexual identity 
and various other problems related to our sexuality and introduces the concept that you have to understand all of these things totally apart from the Bible, and then people can maybe be helped with the problems they have in life. It's a rejection of sin, rejection of man as being created in the image and likeness of God, and that would eventually merge... Uh, that would eventually merge with, with Darwinism, and you get to the 20th century, and people are thought they don't have souls. We're just a collection of various chemical reactions. Everything is physical, and there's no uh, eternal soul. There's no spiritual life, nothing on, on that way. And then you get into the mid part of the 20th century, and you have a number of evangelicals that are beginning to notice that uh, church attendance is waning. Now, this had happened before in the middle of the 19th century. And the, when church attendance wanes, people try to figure out why. And because human beings are self-absorbed, they always think it's something that they're doing. We need to do something different. We need a different methodology. We can't just go along with what Paul did in preaching the word because nobody wants to hear it. And that was a situation in Methodism in the 1840s, and a woman who was a wife of a physician in New York uh, was teaching Bible classes, and she came uh, upon the idea that we just weren't being holy enough. And so there needed to be a second work of grace. And she was influenced by the perfectionism of, of uh, John Wesley and thus introduced uh, not the Texas two-step, but the Methodist holiness two-step. There are two steps to the spiritual life. You get uh, grace at, when you trust in Christ, and then you have to have a second work of grace to get the goodies for the spiritual life. And so it's a change of methodology. In the 20th century, they... They didn't look so much to a holiness theology. They looked to sociology, and they began to define the church as a sociological entity, and we just need to understand the dynamics of human behavior, which are going to be heavily influenced by Freudian presuppositions, and we're going to be influenced by uh, the sociological trends, and we need to get on top of those trends, and then we can capture them and use that to build big churches. And that's what they've done. But the big churches have rejected the teaching of the Word of God uh, because it is contrary to their basic presuppositions, and you can't you can't blend those two together. I mean, it's like oil and water. They're two, two different things. So they develop their own systems of methodology. At the very root of all of this is a failure to understand the church. What is the church? The church is not a sociological entity. The church is a creation of God, a new creation of God that came into existence on the day of Pentecost in AD 33 when the Holy Spirit descended upon the 11 disciples that were gathered together in Jerusalem and on that day they were to go to the temple like any adult Jewish male was supposed to on one of the high holy days and there they proclaimed what Christ had done 
and they had a massive response, but it was not a response to their their understanding of a sociological principle. It was an understanding of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which they proclaimed to their Jewish brothers and sisters at that time. It is the word of God that ultimately gives birth to the church. And we are members of the church. And when you study the word of God, you study Ephesians as we have over the last uh, several years, we come to understand what God is doing in this entity called the church. And the background that I focused on in the previous lessons is that this is talking about this corporate entity that runs all the way through Ephesians. But to say something applies to the corporate entity does not deny that it also applies to every individual within that corporate entity. For example, if you're talking about a code of conduct for a family, for a sports team, for a nation, a set of laws, uh, that is a corporate concept, but it also applies to every individual within that family or within that sports team or corporation or, or nation. And that's the idea that we have discovered that's here in Ephesians 4.20. And what we begin with, or what Paul began with at this point in his, in his development, remember he's developing the principle out of verse 17 where he commands them that they should no longer walk, a metaphor for how you conduct your life, including everything from thinking to actions. And really that's what we mean when we talk about doctrine of Scripture. Doctrine of Scripture has been, within academia, doctrine refers to a certain theological uh, breakdown. People think of doctrine as a, a study of theology. But doctrine in Scripture, the teaching of Scripture, that's what the word describes, is what does the Scripture teach. It teaches us how to think. It teaches us how to live. It teaches us how to relate to one another. And it teaches us how to walk with God. That covers just about everything. That's what we mean by doctrine. It is. It, it's from, it covers everything from soup to nuts. And so this is what was proclaimed by the, by the apostles. And so Paul warns them that they should not walk anymore. They should not think. They should not live like the rest of the Gentiles walk. Now, what's interesting there is we know that there are Jews and Gentiles together in this local body of believers in Ephesus, and it's true for the rest of, of Asia Minor as well. And that these, these Jews and Gentiles are having some problems getting along together. There's, there's conflicts. And that comes, that's a backdrop for understanding a lot of these commands, uh, that show up, you know, in verses 25 down to the first part of chapter 5 is that there's a lack of unity, a lack of harmony. And that's why Paul begins the chapter, uh, chapter 4 emphasizing the unity that we have in Christ, Jew and Gentile, uh, together. And so they are not to walk like the Gentile. There's a distinction between them. And he seems to primarily be addressing the Gentile believers in Ephesus, but that does not necessarily exclude the Jews that are there as well. And then he comes down to um, uh, 
verse 20, after having described the rather perverse, sinful lifestyles that characterized the culture of the Gentiles, he then says in verse 20, but you have not learned Christ in such a way. In other words, you were taught about Christ and about how to live as a Christian, and it's in contrast to how uh, your unsaved neighbors, your unsaved family members, your unsaved co-workers, uh, your unsaved friends think and act. You haven't learned Christ that way. And then the way the King James translates it, it's a, if indeed, and that is a, a uh, has a positive sense. He's assuming what's following is true, and so I've translated it, as several other versions have, assuming you have heard him. He knows that they have heard about Christ. They've been taught well. He's taught them. He says, assuming you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, I've, I've left the, sometimes I leave the article and sometimes I take it out. There's no article in the Greek, but Greek often has a definite concept in mind when it uses a, a word without the article because it doesn't have an indefinite article. So the, the, what's called the anarthris, which means the, there's not an article attached to it, is often a, emphasizing something qualitative. Okay, for example, God, well, the word God, as in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. There's no uh, article in front of theos, and the Jehovah's Witnesses like to drive a truck through that and say that that means that it's just a God. The word was a God. Uh, It's not saying, for them, they're saying that Jesus is not divine. But that's a misunderstanding of the nature of an anarthrous noun. It's qualitative, emphasizing when in John 1 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is saying that the Word had every attribute of God, was qualitatively the same as God, uh, just the opposite of what the Jehovah's Witnesses say. And so here, when he says truth is in Jesus... He is talking about something qualitative. And so we would translate that in English with a the. And it is the truth. It is, as Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so this is embodied truth, everlasting, immutable truth that is in the Godhead is embodied in Jesus. And then he says that you have already put off, we've studied this, concerning your former conduct, the old man which is constantly being corrupted according to the deceitful lusts. Positively, he says, and be renewed. The phrase already put off is past tense, be renewed is present tense, and it is continuous action, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you have already put on the new man. Again, a past tense word. You have already put on the new man, which we learned from Ephesians 2.15 is the church, the body of Christ. You've already put on the new man, which was created. Notice it doesn't say that the old man was created. 
It was originally in Genesis 1. It refers to the creation of Adam in Genesis 2 specifically, and that is the, the old man is basically equivalent to our position in Adam. You have already put on the new man, and we've seen that that is basically our new position in Christ because that's what we put on at the instant of salvation. You have already put on the new man, which was created. What's created? What To what word does the which refer? It refers to the new man. You've got to go back to Ephesians 2.15 to define the new man. The new man is the church where Jew and Gentile have now been united together in one new man, one new body. They're one new building and one new temple. So the the uh, it is that new entity, the new man, which was created. When was it created? Day of Pentecost, 33 A.D., It was created according to God. It's the body of Christ that's created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So that's that's basically an overview of what we've seen. And so by way of review, in Ephesians, we saw that a major, major theme is this corporate theme, this corporate reality, and it emphasizes the unity that we have in Christ. And throughout the New Testament... Are in the epistles. In 1 Corinthians 12, we are one body of Christ, but many members. There's this unity, and also there's the diversity of the distinction of individuals. And so in Ephesians uh, 2.15, we read that he abolished in the flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. The Mosaic law made a strict distinction between Gentiles and Jews. So as now to create in himself, it wasn't there in the Old Testament. It is now, it started on the day of Pentecost, create in himself one new man from the two. The, who are the two? The two are Jew and Gentile, thus making peace. Second point to remind you is the we emphasizes the joining together of Jewish Jewish and Gentile believers. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his masterpiece, not masterpieces, which would be each individual, but we, the corporate body of Christ, are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The problem in their experience was a lack of unity, which is seen in the coming verses. Uh, Ephesians 4.31 and 2 talks about bitterness and wrath and divisiveness and anger, and the corrective is to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. And this is goes back to the theme here in Ephesians 4.1, that we are to walk worthy of this new exalted position to which you were summoned. What's that exalted position? That we are in Christ, that we have been, we have put on Christ, we have been clothed with Christ. This is our new identity. One of the big problems that we have in our culture is that out of humanism came this concept of self-image. And it is contrary to Scripture. And the solution to people who think they have a self-image problem, 
is that our identity is Christ. It's not what you see in the mirror. It's not how you look. It's not what talents or abilities you have or you don't have. It's none of the things you're upset with that are not right in your life, and so you think you have a bad self-image. You only think badly of yourself because you think highly of yourself. You're disappointed that you weigh what you weigh or look like you look or can't do what you'd like to do or all of these other things. You know, Scripture teaches us that we love ourselves. When, when the Scripture says, love your neighbor as yourself, it is assuming that you love yourself. And um, uh, in, when talking about the love of a husband for his wife, says you're to love your, your wife as Christ loved the church, and then it says, for no man hates his own body. Well, that's a universal principle. So all of these purveyors of psychobabble operate on the principle that you do hate yourself. That's directly contradicted by the Bible, which says no man ever hates himself. We love ourselves. That's why we get disappointed in ourselves. It's not a self-image problem. It's you don't understand that you are in being renewed according to the image of Christ. That's a whole new concept for a lot of people, that we have to think like the Bible says and not like the world says. So in Ephesians 4.1, this is our new exalted position to which we were summoned with all humility and gentleness, with long-suffering, putting up with one another in love, and being diligent or persevering to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because sometimes we get cross with one another, and we have to deal with that and forgive one another as God, for Christ's sake, forgave us. We looked at Colossians 3.9, just to go here. It's a parallel passage where it's clear that we have already put off the old man with his deeds. The old man is not the sin nature. We have not put off the sin nature, and you know that very well. I don't need to remind you. And so because of the grammar here, it's very clear that we have already put off the old man with his deeds. And because of that, we have to recognize that we have already put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Okay? who did Image of him is uppercase him, image of Christ, who created him. What's the him? That refers to the new man what, that was created by God. When? Day of Pentecost. It's the church. Now, I've come up with a graphic here. I alluded to this, talked about this last week, but I thought it'd be fun to have a graphic. with. So before we're saved, that's above the black line. You have the team Gentile on the left, and on the right you have team Jew. They were separate. They were distinct. There was a division between them based on the law, which is what Paul refers to as the enmity uh, of the ordinances. That's the old man. Jew and Gentile were all in Adam. That was our position in Adam before we were, we were saved. But after we're sa- saved, that, that heavy black line shows that there is a clear, absolute, and eternal break that takes place at the instant of trusting Christ. And we are entered into Christ, identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what is pictured in the ritual of water baptism. 
It is talking about our new position in Christ coming out of the water. We are a new creation in Christ, First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. And now we are on a new team. We put off the old man. We took off the jersey we had before, and we put on the new jersey for the new team, and that identifies us as team church. That's who we are. When, you, when an athlete signs, leaves one team and goes to another team, a lot of things have to change. He has to learn a new playbook. He has to new, new, learn new things that are expected of him in terms of behavior. Not so much anymore, but back in the old days, there was a protocol, a code of conduct uh, that many teams had and that they expected their athletes to behave a certain way. And if they didn't behave that way, then they, their contract was, would be in jeopardy. And so you have one code of conduct for Team Gentile, another code of conduct for Team Jew. But when you trust in Christ, you, you join a new team and you have a new code of conduct. And that's what the Christian life is all about, is learning that, that new code of conduct, learning how to walk by the Spirit, uh, learning what it means to be a new creation in Christ, learning uh, about grace, learning doctrine, learning all kinds of things. It's a never-ending process because we barely scratch the surface and all of a sudden we're promoted to heaven. You just think about the antediluvian fathers, Adam lives to be 930 years old. He's got a lot of time to learn a lot of things. We don't. We have a tenth of that amount of time if, if God blesses. And so we have a, a lot to try to uh, develop over time. So what happens at salvation, I don't know why the one on the left duplicated, but what we have is we, we move to team church, and we are uh, now one uh, we have been created, this team church is created as one new man from the two, making peace in this new position in Christ. So as Colossians 3, 10 and 11 reminds us that having put on the new man, that's related to uh, what is referred to in Galatians and other passages as the result of the baptism by the Spirit, where there's no longer this distinction uh, before God of Jew or Greek. Now, the Jews are still ethnic Jews, and the Gentiles are still ethnic Scots or ethnic Spaniards or ethnic Russians or ethnic Chinese. But in terms of their position in Christ, being a Gentile is no longer what they are. They are a believer in Christ. They are a Christian. And so as a result of that, we have to learn about Christ what he said, what he taught, and how we are to live. And this is where we find ourselves in Ephesians 4, 20 and 21. Uh, we have uh, heard him and have been taught by him. Ultimately, it is Christ, the one who sent another comforter. That's in John 14, the Holy Spirit, who is the one who uh, teaches us. We, are, we learn by the Holy Spirit. And so this, uh, this word to teach is the main verb then that covers, uh, what I've been teaching in the last few weeks in Ephesians 4.22, that when it says, 
you have already put off, the beginning of verse 22, is developing from the word what they have been taught. What have they been taught? Taught is a communication word. And as I mentioned before, in the late 19th century, a well-known Greek scholar by the name of Burton wrote a book on moods and tenses of the Greek New Testament, and he researched 150 instances of this, uh, of the aorist infinitive in the Old Testament. But what he didn't do was look at what kind of main verb they were dealing with. And so it was not until about 40 years ago that some students, or a student, did a doctoral dissertation utilizing uh, computerized text and discovered that when the controlling verb is a verb of communication, speaking, talking, teaching, then it could be either a command or it could be a statement of fact, okay, making it a declarative sentence. And so here, in order for to understand this, as I pointed out, we go to other passages like Romans 6.6, 6, where it's extremely clear that we have put off the old man. He's gone. We're not in Adam anymore. We're in Christ. And Colossians 3, 8, and 9, it's also past tense. We have put off the old man. That we must understand this in uh, coordination with these other passages and in accord with our understanding of Greek grammar, that what Paul is saying is you have already put off that Gentile T-shirt and you have put on Team Christ, the church. So we've already put off... And that refers to a couple of things we could say about the grammar there. It begins to the beginning of an action, which is described grammatically as an inceptive force, something that begins. So it's starting something new, and it has a, a sense of a completed action, not something that is in process. We're not continuing to put off the old man. It is something that is completed and in past time. And we have put off the old man, and so he says, and that relates to your former conduct. The word there in Greek is anastrophe, and it has the idea of describing a way of life. And a way of life flows out of your way of thinking. Everybody has some sort of worldview. Some people have an eclectic worldview because they think in terms only in terms of contradictions, and they're never taught how to think properly, and so they just do whatever they feel like doing or thinking at the moment. It doesn't have to be logically consistent or correlated with anything else. And so that produces certain types of living. It produces a certain uh, code of conduct, and it produces a certain way of relating to people and priorities. And so this former conduct is that which characterized the unbelieving world, that which was described back in verses um, uh, 17 through 19, that their uh, walk in the futility or the purposelessness of their thinking Their understanding is darkened. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, uh, because of the uh, callousness of their heart, 
correctly translated, and they've given themselves over to lasciviousness, lustfulness to work all uncleanness with greediness. And in Colossians 3, greed is idolatry. So all of that has been, is the former conduct. It describes the way of life of the unbeliever. Uh, so we've put off the old man, our previous position and identity in Adam. And then we read that this is that old man is this phrase, the uh, palion anthropon, and that's in Romans 6, 6 and Colossians 3, 9, as we've seen. And it is uh, growing corrupt. The word thyro here, it's a present passive participle. The present tense is its ongoing continuous action. The Those in Adam are continuing uh, the process of corrupting the old man. Uh, that is a continuous action, and we look out on the world around us, and you see this increasing corruption. It happened before the fall, twice in Genesis 6, in verse, I think it's verse 8 and verse 11. It talks about the corruption that was on the planet in the human race, which is why God was bringing a worldwide flood as judgment on that civilization. And so the same thing has continued ever since the flood because of sin, and so it is the old man continues to be corrupted. That is, those in Adam increase the level of corruption. Just watch the news. It is passive. That is... It, 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 this corruption is, is come, there's something that's acting upon it that's causing that corruption. And that's what we see in the next phrase where it talks about according to the, uh, deceitful lusts. And this is an interesting phrase, but it's talking about the deceitfulness of lust. Because we all have various uh, lust patterns. They are all part of our sin nature. And it is the desire for something that we think will make us happy. We think all kinds of things will bring happiness and, uh, and fulfillment into our lives. We think that uh, having a certain, certain social status... Uh, is going to bring happiness and fulfillment into our lives. Having a certain income level, uh, maybe being married to a certain kind of person. You know, people get married for all kinds of reasons. And uh, one of the questions I often ask in, in uh, premarital counseling is, well, why do you want to marry this person? And I've heard some really bizarre answers. The first thing will come out of their mouth. I had uh, one couple, they just weren't quite, I didn't think they, after this, I didn't think they were ready and I asked, well, asked the lady, why do you want to marry him? She said, I want to leave home. <laughs> I decided that I re- highly recommended they wait a couple of years. Uh, they did not like that, and they went ahead and got married, had a lot of problems, but they did put it all together and have a glorious marriage now. But they went through some bumpy, some bumpy times. Uh, but people get, ma- get married because they want security, they get married because they, they're just lonely. They get married because uh, they're going to have a higher social status. They're going to have better income. Uh, they, they think they're going to have a lot of fun. Uh, whatever it may be, they have all kinds of reasons. And uh, the best reason is 
because I have found this person to be someone who will compliment me in my pursuit of glorifying God. That is the purpose of marriage. Anything less is you're just living like the rest of the Gentiles lived. You're not living like someone in Christ. For the purpose of marriage, like the purpose of everything else, is ultimately to glorify God. And so we, once you understand that, that helps you. When that be, is assimilated into part of your makeup, then that enables you to solve problems in a way you never could before. Because if you both have the same goal of glorifying God, that it's easy to deal with and analyze and repair problems. But the problem is that we have these lusts that get in the way, and they come out of our sin nature. So here's our little review of our sin nature diagram. And so uh, what we have is two areas in the uh, sin nature that... uh, produce that which is unacceptable to God. Now, at the top, it's your area of strength. We all like to do good things. Most of us do. There are some people who just like to do evil things, and they're all full of bitterness and anger. But we call this human good. It's not produced by the Holy Spirit. It's just produced by our own efforts. And so when you look, let's look at the Old Testament or New Testament, rather, you see Jesus dealing with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were not believers in Jesus as Messiah. They rejected him as Messiah. But they had an extremely high view of the Mosaic law. They, Many of them memorized all of the Mosaic law, all 613 commandments, as well as all of the traditional rabbinical interpretations. And they lived a an ethical life, a life of high morality and ritualized spirituality that was not based on the Bible. They did good things, but they're spiritually dead. See, spiritually dead people can do many good things, but it has no value. It has no eternal value. It has no value before God because we are not saved by works. We are saved by grace uh, through faith. And so human good produces morality, it produces all kinds of religions, and it produces a measure of human integrity, but it is still a production of the sin nature. Then at the opposite end, we have what we usually think of as the product of the sin nature, and that is personal sins. We have mental attitude sins where we're envious, we're jealous, we have sins uh, of emotion related to anger and, and bitterness and jealousy, and all kinds of these personal sins. And we're willing to admit that those are personal sins, but we really like our good deeds. We think that somehow should impress God because it certainly impresses everybody we know. But it all comes out of one sinful nature that is the only nature anyone has from the time they are born physically until the time they are born again spiritually. And that's a hard concept for some people to understand, that prior to your salvation, you could only think as a rebellious creature of God. You could only think in terms of that which was sin, that which was uh, a, a way of thinking that was 
uh, contrary to Scripture. There may have been points where there were some similarities, but in whole and in part, it was nothing but a product of the sin nature. And at the very uh, core of the sin nature is a motivator, which are these various lust patterns. Uh, the lust of the eyes is uh, one way that John puts it in First uh, John. Uh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. These are less, various uh, lust patterns that we find in Scripture. Romans one twenty four says that, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, talking about those who have rejected uh, rejected the evidence of God's presence and God's existence that is in his creation. And so as they continue down that path of rejection, we have three stages in Romans 1 where God gives them over to their sin. And that's the judgment of God on their negative volition as he get, turns them over to uh, carry on. Oh, you, you want enough rope to hang yourself? Let me give you some more. And so they are, uh, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity. And here it is referring to both homosexuality and lesbianism so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Uh, Romans 6.12 Believers are commanded, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. So we can, now as believers, because there's a break with the power of the sin nature, we, can, we have the, uh, the tool of Scripture, the power of God, the Holy Spirit, that we can apply so that we can say no to the lust patterns of the, of the sin nature. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 4, Paul says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Everybody says, oh, I read a comment by this yesterday by a pastor. You ought to know better. Oh, we must be in the last days. Look at the evil that is out there. That was his response to an article about some new animated film, I think, that that Disney has coming out where you have a... You know, uh, someone, a woman gets pregnant by Satan, and it just, it's just, it's demonic. The whole thing is demonic. Um, but guess what? Uh, my response was Pollyanna was demonic too. You know, anything that's not of Scripture is classified as earthly, sensual, and demonic by James. Um, so the last days describes the period that began roughly when the church began. We're in the, we've been in the last days for almost 2,000 years. You always have to distinguish between the last days for the church and the last days of Israel. And we've been in those last days. And there are trends in the last days. For men will be lovers of themselves. Wasn't that true before Christ? Wasn't that true back in Genesis 1 through 11? Wasn't that true all the way through Israel's history? Wasn't that true at the time of Christ? Sure, this, it's very much true today. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, money lust, uh, boasters, uh, proud. Uh, they desire attention and they desire power. This is uh, approbation lust and power lust. Uh, disobedient to parents. 
uh, rebelliousness towards parents. If you don't learn authority as a child from your parents, you will have trouble with authority your whole life. And this is so characteristic today, but this isn't the first time in the church age we've had civilizations that have been characterized uh, by this. Ungrateful. Uh, you know, some of these, everybody says, this, this is today. Well, I remember first time I heard a pastor teach on this back in the ni- late 1960s, and we thought it was today then. Uh, unthank- ungrateful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's the orientation of the sin nature. And everybody who's an unbeliever, that is the orientation of their sin nature. They're just following it out. It's only if you have a culture that is dominated by an ethical standard that comes out of the word of God that there is a semblance of this not being true. And that was the way it was in many areas of our country in the early centuries, but not in the last hundred years or so. You also have reference to sexual lust, and that is uh, what's behind Hebrews 13.4. Marriage is honorable among all men, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Colossians 3.5 talks about Greed, monetary lust, uh, materialism lust. Uh, Therefore, put to death your members. So this is talking about an individual command to individual believers. Put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil lust, and greed, which is idolatry. So materialism lust and money lust it's just a form of idolatry. But these lusts are deceitful because in all of these different lusts, we think that we're going to get something if we can just achieve this evil thing that we desire. And I remember hearing a uh, Christian psychologist one time, uh, he, was, he said a few things that were good and a lot that wasn't. But he said, if you think that that uh, having a good time, great party, drugs and booze and women it will make you happy and give you fulfillment, then, then instead of your marriage and glorifying God, then why don't you just go uh, get on a plane, buy a bunch of booze at duty-free, get on a plane, go down to the Bahamas and hire a bunch of girls and just have a party. You'll be fulfilled and happy. That's not going to bring any kind of fulfillment or happiness. It's an empty promise. That's the deceitfulness of lust. Romans thirteen fourteen is not a salvation verse. Augustine thought that. He read this one day, and he decided he'd become a Christian. I've often wanted to write a book on the number of verses that have nothing to do with salvation that people were saved by reading. Uh, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Now, this is an example of Paul using the same word that we've been studying to put on as, as a post-salvation individual command 
to put on Christ. Realize who you are in Christ and make no provision for the flesh, that is the sin nature, in regard to its lust. So Ephesians 4.22 says, You were taught, you have already put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, your old position in Adam, which grows corrupt according to its deceitful lust. But the positive command is 4.23. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Be renewed in what you think. This is, uh, the Greek word here is ana-neo, which is interesting. It's from one word for new. You have another word for new that is used in Romans 12 to a parallel passage, anakinosis. Kine is one word for new. Naos is another word for new. Uh, but they're often used interchangeably, and that emphasizes one thing. Uh, it is uh, kine or, uh, that has the idea of something that is recent, something that is new in time. And then the other now has the idea of, of something that is qualitatively different. So when you have the same thing referred to with both words, then what you see is there's both a qualitative and a uh, newness in time to what we have. So when we renew our mind, it is both something qualitatively new and an ability that is new in time for us personally. But Romans 12.2 says, do not be conformed to this world. In other words, don't let the sight guys, the spirit of the age, pressure you into thinking like everybody else thinks and living like everybody else lives. And I have warned Christians again and again that you have to be very careful in today's world. You have to be careful in in education because the curricula in many schools and teachers in many schools and professors want to pressure you into conforming or you will be canceled. And some Christians need to be wise and realize that's not good for them and they uh, can't change a thing and they need to go somewhere else, find a better environment than maybe the one they are in. There are some in the Bible who uh, didn't have any option to do that. Think of Daniel and you think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were uh, POWs who were then co-opted into the service of the bureaucracy, and they had no choice. They could not go somewhere. They appealed to God, and they appealed to the authority, and God changed things for them, but that is not a way that works always for people today. We're in a voluntary society and voluntary positions, and I discovered this many times in my life that it was... Uh, I was not going to have either the time or the energy to change the structure that was over me, so I needed to change it myself and to make another option. And a lot of believers never wake up to those pressures that are on them, and they end up succumbing to those pressures. And so you have to be alert, and you have to pay attention to what's going on and decide uh, what you need to do, and everybody is in different circumstances, and some people can um, can survive in areas where there are certain pressures, and others cannot, and you have to decide. 
So that is, that is the warning. We are not to be conformed to the world, but we are to be transformed by the renovation of our thinking that we can demonstrate that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. So we'll stop there this time. We'll come back next time, put it together, finish up wrapping it, tying it to other parallel passages on the spiritual life uh, in the uh, in the New Testament so that we can wrap up this study before I head out of town uh, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for all that you have given us and all that you've provided for us spiritually, all the resources we have in our spiritual life with the completed uh, canon of Scripture. We have your word that is sufficient. We have a Savior who is sufficient. Uh, we have a teaching from your word that is clear and accurate. And we need to avail ourselves of those things. What a blessing it is to have so much available in our generation. But who often we ignore it, we treat it cavalierly, we take it for granted. And constantly we need to be renewing our spirit of our mind. We need to rethink and we need to reevaluate. We need to make sure that our priorities do not uh, get subtly diluted. So, Father, we are thankful for all that you have given us and all of our assets in Christ, in the church, the universal body of Christ. And, Father, help us to understand how that shapes our identity, shapes our thinking, shapes our whole understanding of our priorities and our purpose in life to glorify you. Now, Father, we pray that if there's anyone who is listening to this message and we pray that you would make the gospel very clear to them, the good news of our salvation, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he rose again from the grave to newness of life, and that this is the foundation of the Christian life, is faith in Christ, faith that he died for our sins, paid the penalty that we now have forgiveness and eternal life only through faith in Christ and that that would be clear, that it is not by works, it's not by personal reformation. You do not make yourself more acceptable to God uh, as unsaved, spiritually dead individuals. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves more acceptable to God. But we can trust in Christ. And when we trust in Christ, then he gives us Christ's righteousness, and that and that alone makes us acceptable to you. Please make that clear to any who need to hear the gospel that it is just faith alone in Christ alone. Father, thank you for the encouragement we've had from your word today that we might be strengthened in the inner man by the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.